Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined, as I always am, by President Wyatt. Scott, it's good to see you again. It's good to see you, Steve. These are uh, really enjoyable conversations that we get to have. I'm, I'm enjoying them a great deal as well. And speaking of the conversations we're having, uh, we were spurred by a uh, special report from the Chronicle of Higher Education called The Looming Enrollment Crisis to dedicate, um, to dedicate this series of podcasts, really, for this spring semester of 2020 to the upcoming challenges that will be uh, facing higher education generally and SUU specifically, of course. And uh, there are a number of organizations that are outside of higher education or related to higher education that help um, they help us to analyze, they help us to forecast, they help us to see where we are and where we may be. Uh, we've, we've interviewed people from investors, services, and, and uh, other organizations, uh, and we have, we have a representative of yet another organization that, that looks at and analyzes higher education, uh, particularly in this case from a funding standpoint. And uh, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, it is our privilege to have with us today Sophia Latterman, a senior policy analyst from the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association. Uh, Welcome, Sophia. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So how are things in Boulder, Colorado today? Uh, Good. We have a nice sunny day and some good weather, so that's always nice. In January, (laughs) that's the best you can hope for in in either Cedar City or Boulder, I think. Yes, that's true, yeah. Yeah, well, Boulder is such a beautiful place. You're fortunate to be able to live and work there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. We're totally in love with Cedar City, but it's um, this whole intermountain, Rocky Mountain uh, region is such a delightful place to be. Uh, so beautiful and uh, uh, the outdoors and the people and everything. It's such a, it's a, it's a really pretty neat that's right. Well, tell us about SHEO, um, State Higher Education Executive Officers Association. Um, before we get going on this uh, conversation, why don't you give us just a little bit of background about SHEO and your involvement with SHEO? Sure. So, yeah, SHEO, the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association, we are a member organization for um, essentially whoever is the most senior person in charge of higher education in every state. Um, and then as well as the agency that they work with. Um, and that varies from state to state. So here in Colorado, we have a Department of Higher Education. Um, so the person who heads up that department is one of our members, as is their whole agency. Um, and our, our purpose is really to um, help convene people from all the different states um, and help them work together, learn best practices from each other, talk about problems that they may be facing um, you know, across the country, uh, we also do a fair amount of policy research, 
Um, we collect a lot of data and report on um, a number of different areas. And my area with SHIO is uh, finance. So I've been at SHIO for about four and a half years. And uh, this whole time I've been working on the State Higher Education Finance Report, which um, we collect data from 72 different agencies across the state and try to get both a state level and a national picture for um, how state funding and tuition um, is changing across the states over time. So we have a data set at this point that goes back to 1980. Um, so this is really one of the most rich data sources to understand how we're funding our public institutions. What are the, what are the trends that are most um, noteworthy right now that are occurring nationally? Um, so I, I think the main the main trend is this long-term dis disinvestment of state funding for higher education. If we go all the way back to 1980, funding was um, a lot higher, several thousand dollars per student higher. So that means that your average student at, an, at a public institution was getting a lot more state money for their education. And so as state funding has gone down, tuition revenue has gone up. Um, and I think that's what ends up in the news most often is increases in tuition rates. Um, that affects students, and so now we have this whole affordability crisis, student loan crisis, and um, a lot of that, I think, can be traced back to states just reducing their commitment to higher education over time. Um, several thousand dollars uh, reduced from the 1980s until the present per student. Is that um, a combination of increasing enrollments and declining state investments, or is it primarily one or the other? How do you see that? that that's a very good question and a good point. Um, it's, I, I would say the there are three different things happening with the decline in state funding. The first is just that states aren't able to keep up with inflation. Um, as inflation continues, if states can't actually increase their funding, assuming everything else is constant, that would look like and effectively be a decrease over time. And then the other piece, is the enrollment piece. So as enrollment increases, um, states either need to increase their funding to match that, um, and they can't, always, they can't always do that. So um, I think it's, it's a combination of those two things, and then the third thing would be actual cuts in state funding, which um, in a number of states we've seen that happen. Um, sometimes leadership will come into a state and not think that higher education should be publicly funded or there are other budgetary issues in the state and higher education is an easy spot to cut because there is another revenue source. So it's kind of a combination of all these different factors, the inflation, enrollment, um, and actual cuts to higher education funding. And the extent to each of those pieces is different in every state. Um, I think in Utah, the percent of the state budget that goes to higher education is about 18%. So that's, that's quite a big percent. When you take uh, public ed and higher education together, uh, well over 50%, and uh, that leaves um, not as much money for parks and roads and prisons and courts and um, just all of the other things that state governments in the middle of, uh, all the entitlements with uh, Medicare and Medicaid uh, matches and mental health, just everything. There's a lot of demands on state governments today. Right, exactly. And and like I said, higher education is an easy place to cut if you need to. Um, states need to balance their budgets. And as other demands increase, like Medicaid or K-12 education, um, or if tax revenues decline, states have to do something. 
Um, so while I'm obviously an advocate for funding for higher education, it also states kind of do what they can. And I don't think that there's malicious intent behind a lot of this. It's just that other costs have increased and higher education does have another revenue source. Yeah, we, that's, we hear that all the time. Uh, you have another revenue source, which is tuition. I think in Utah, it, um, at, at least our school, it used to be that the state covered about 70% of our cost. And now it's under 50% of the cost, which um, still is, is pretty, is pretty good. good. Yeah. <laughs> Compared to a lot of places. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's better than um, across the U.S. if you're looking at universities in particular. Um, I think roughly your average community college is probably about 70%, 60 to 70% funded by the state still. And your average four-year institution is maybe like 30 to 40% funded by the state. Um, Here in Colorado, we are one of the lowest states for state funding. So uh, SHEO is located right next to the University of Colorado Boulder, and they get less than 10% of their funding from the state. Wow. Wow, less than 10%. And then... Um, what we hear uh, a lot of times is, is, as you've already mentioned, but why is tuition going up? And, uh, of course, that's a complicated answer. I mean, there's a lot of complications in that. But but as the state share goes down, um, tuition goes up to meet that gap. Right, exactly. Um, institutions need revenue from somewhere. Um, and there are... There are a lot of different hypotheses for why tuition goes up, and I think all those different hypotheses probably have some some part of truth. Um, I believe that research shows the largest portion of tuition rate increases um, is due to declines in state funding, but there are also other components. And I think one that's not talked about a lot is uh, it's possible that education is actually just more expensive now, or at least we're not able to uh, have an economy of scale to the same extent. You, we don't really want to increase classroom sizes or um, move all education online. Um, I don't think there's enough information about how that works yet. So unlike most manufacturing and things like that, we can't really get more and more efficient. And then at the same time, there's all these increased technology costs. Um, There's increased costs for buildings and maintenance as a lot of colleges and universities get older um, and have a lot of deferred maintenance issues. There are whole new populations of students that we're educating now that have different needs and might need more support services. So there's this whole other piece of that as well. Well, and it seemed to me that one of the reasons why the costs have gone up, one of the contributing factors, be interested in your reaction to this, but we went, we went back and, um, and did a kind of a flow chart of um, all the services provided at our university at Southern Utah University and, and went back 100 years, you know. When did the first Title IX office open? When did the first advising office open? When did the first mental health counselor and show up? The first up university police station. Police department. Right. And, um, and it, seems, it seems like um, 50 years ago we were an organization that taught students. <laughs> and today we're an organization that is uh, like a small country. Because we've just yeah, yeah, absolutely. The kinds of things that we're expected to do today um, far exceed what was expected a long time ago. We're the we're the number one organization responsible for economic development in our region. We're the number one 
group responsible for mental health. We have more mental health uh, counselors at our university than in the community. We've we've got our police department. And really, within probably 300 miles of southern Utah, we have the most mental health. I mean, we <laughs> yeah, it's a real. We are a real center in a way that that we used to just be a center for education. We're now a center for regional for, services yeah, and regional services. Everything. So that's a contributor. Yeah, I, I would say that. How much, how much are you seeing that being a force uh, nationally? Do you have a way of? I, I think that's yeah. Um, I don't have numbers on that necessarily, but um, I do think that's a contributing factor to the rising cost of education. Um, I have seen some research on just federal regulations and reporting burdens and all of the data collection requirements and all those kinds of things, um, and that does increase the number of administrators that you need and things like that. Um, but I also think that other point you just made about all of the different services you provide to the community is really interesting and not um, talked about quite as much. And I think that's also a pretty good argument for continuing to publicly fund higher education. We know that there are all of these huge benefits and they can be really hard to measure. Like it's hard to measure how much the existence of your institution you know, increases civic engagement or increases um, volunteering in the community. All of those different kinds of benefits that we sort of know anecdotally are there, but those things are really hard to measure, and that makes it also really hard to argue for additional funding. Yeah, I, I, um, I wish that we could um, recognize some of these funding pieces. For example, um, is it the university's responsibility to have a police force? Well, actually, it's the city or the county or the state. But because our local city can't afford to take care of law enforcement for our university, we take that over. So that's kind of a shifting of costs from state and local governments into higher education. And for mental health, um, we've got a huge office full of mental health counselors, and that's really a state mental health issue But um, or the private sector. So those are what it seems like shifting of expenses from um, – the state, the local mental health authorities into uh, higher education and and um, just a lot of those kinds of things. So when I see that um, in Utah, as an example, that 18% of the budget goes to higher education, um, I actually think that it's less than 18% because a portion of that amount of money is taking care of services that other parts of state government should have been taking care of. And we're happy to do it uh, because we want our students to be successful. But it's not but it's wrong to realize that it actually is there and is a, is a cost. Yeah, that's right. And we're super happy to be an economic development engine in our area where 100 years ago nobody thought that was what we were supposed to do. Well, those are interesting trends. Uh, what do you see um, relative to... Uh, Tuition. What's happening with tuition around the country? Not just going up. Uh, well, yeah, so actually in the last few years, tuition rates have not really increased beyond the rate of inflation. Um, yet we still have this narrative of increasing tuition rates and increasing tuition revenue. Uh, I do want to clarify, sometimes I say tuition revenue versus rates. Tuition revenue would just be all of the tuition dollars that an institution receives, and that can go up if the institutions 
homeschooled and more out-of-state students, increases graduate enrollment, um, has more international students, or if they increase tuition rates. So the tuition revenue number kind of captures all these different potential strategies to increase total funding for the institution. Um, but tuition revenue also hasn't gone up in the last few years. So I think that's probably got something to do with all of the increasing pressure to keep college affordable. That's much more in sort of the national sphere of media, and that's something that people are very aware of and talking about. So I think it's possible that we've gotten to a point where tuition has increased kind of as much as it can, um, and there's so much pressure to keep it from going up even more that we might really be limited in that area. But um, over time, like since the 1980s, tuition has gone up um, over 300% if you don't consider inflation. Um, and more moderately, if you do consider inflation, but tuition has certainly increased a lot. College used to be, if not almost free, something that you could easily work a part-time job and pay for. Um, and that hasn't been true for maybe 15 years. But I do think that the tuition increases we've seen have really slowed down, if not stopped, in the last few years. Yeah, in Utah, the tuition has gone up since 2000, uh, 216%. Well, general inflation's only risen by about 48%. So we're four times, more than four times uh, inflation just in the last 20 years. But but we, as a, an institution, have we chose to not raise tuition this past year and, and have, have, since you've been here, not raised the um, what's the right way to say it? There were there were involuntary tuition raises that were sort of foisted on us by the state in past uh, budget cycles, and then there were optional tuition uh, raises that universities could make to cover certain expenses or start new programs and so forth. And you've we haven't we, we haven't we haven't any taken any of those optional uh, things um, at because we're we agree with you that. Tuition may have, at least in our market, it may have risen as much as we can afford to have it rise and still be, be seen as affordable uh, for our constituents in our area and, and around the world. We compare well, our... Uh, oh, please go ahead. Sorry. Uh, so you touched a little bit on state involvement in setting tuition. And I think that's another really interesting area because states vary so much. In some states, um, it's really just the institutions get to set and propose and set their own tuition rates and have kind of full control over that. Um, in other states, there is some involvement with the state coordinating board or with the legislature, um, and they can limit tuition increases or completely freeze them. And so you end up with certain states like, I'm thinking of Florida and Missouri, have had really long-standing tuition freezes. So institutions haven't been able to raise tuition which I think at first sounds great, but um, at least in Missouri, they're now in a situation where they have very little overall funding because of state funding cuts and the inability to raise tuition. So it really puts institutions in a bad place. Um, and I think the model that you're describing where there are sometimes optional tuition increases that an institution can make if they need to, that seems like that makes a lot of sense and that it's worked for you and that you can determine year to year whether you need those increases or not. Yeah, our our governor this year has requested a tuition freeze at all institutions until we can define what affordability is. You know, what really is affordable for people to go to college. 
And uh, that makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. But then also, um, every institution is different. Some institutions may be charging too much. Some might be um, emerging. We have a couple schools in Utah that have changed from community college to universities just recently. And, um, and they're still transitioning from being a community college to being a university. We've got two of those. And uh, so their tuition may be catching up with university rates. Anyway, it's, it's, it's more complicated than, um, than it is at first glance. And I think the other piece there, too, is the um, financial aid component. Um, the, the difference between a sticker price or the published price of tuition and the price that most students are actually paying can be pretty big, but it varies a lot. And I think that can be really confusing for students, especially if they're the first in their family to go to college or come from a low-income family. Um, it can be really frightening to see the $40,000 sticker price of an institution and not realize that depending on your own financial situation, you might be paying a lot less than that. Um, and that is an area actually that states have been doing really well at um, in terms of increasing their commitments to student financial aid. So while overall funding has gone down over time, financial aid has actually increased a fair amount since about 2000 when we started tracking that. And that also kind of signifies that commitment to affordability, I think, that states are trying to put money where they can to most directly help the students that are going to have the hardest time with tuition increases. This may be outside of your uh, comfort zone just a little bit, but I, since we're all three in and around higher ed, I'm, I've always been interested in this um, sticker price versus actual price conversation uh, that you just brought up. What what do you think? What do you think is are some possible solutions for that in terms of of either more clearly stating what the actual price of something is, or to say your price may vary, and here are some, here are some of the ways in which your price may vary. Uh, it 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 just seems like um, it seems like going to college is is very much like taking a flight. There may be somebody on there that's paying full freight, and there may be somebody on there that uh, is traveling free for miles, and somebody on there that is uh, there's just such a an incredibly wide range of of uh, amounts of money that people spend to go to a college or university. Is it impossible to? answer these in any sort of one-size-fits-all way? Or or are there things that universities and colleges could do to better inform students, especially those, as you've suggested, that are first-time attenders or, or uh, the first in their family to go or uh, you know, that have that kind of a situation where it can be confusing? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I And I don't know if there is one single solution, but I do think that just increased transparency and upfront information would be really helpful for students. Um, one area that can be really challenging is that students often don't know their financial aid award until long after they've been admitted and potentially after they need to make a decision about where they're attending. Um, so getting those financial aid award letters out early um, and also being very clear in those what each type of funding is. And I think that we've gotten better at that, at distinguishing this is a loan that you'll need to repay versus this is a grant that you don't need to repay. Um, but I think just clear and upfront information, and that's challenging to do because there are thousands of institutions, and each one needs to kind of come up with their own solution for that. 
Um, I've seen some cost calculators that are great. But again, that kind of requires the student to have to know enough that they realize that the sticker price isn't what they might actually pay and to go on the website and find that information. Um, and depending on where the student's coming from, that might not be realistic. If they don't have people in their family or community or high school counselors encouraging them to find that, they might just see that sticker price and be, uh, you know, think that college isn't something they can do. Um, and in a way, I think free college promise type programs have a potential to overcome that because it is just this universal um, idea of college will be free and it's never really that simple. Um, but I, I wonder if rather than trying to have each institution come up with solutions to, to help potential students see their costs, maybe it is kind of this broader scale thing of something like free college or debt free college. Um, it seems like the idea of a promise that students won't have to pay for college or even a promise that they won't need to go into debt for college, that could be really powerful. Yeah, we, we, uh, everybody likes free. Yeah. That's a price everyone can yeah. understand. Yeah. And I, I'm actually not necessarily advocating for just like national or statewide free college. Um, but I do think that kind of marketing piece works really well and it's really interesting. Um, just in getting people to think that this is something they can do and that they can afford. Yeah. You're working with um, with all of the uh, head executive of higher education through all the states. Ours is uh, commissioner of higher education, um, Dave Wollstone-Hume, uh, serving kind of as an interim. Um, That's interim. right. That's right. Uh, because we're redesigning some of the structures in the Utah system. It, um, it looks like we may consolidate the Utah system of higher education with the Utah system of technical colleges into one. That's going to happen in the coming legislative session, maybe. Yeah. There's recommendations and seems to be momentum towards doing that. Um, but um, And, and that will change uh, quite a bit uh, how we do things here. But what do you see in, in the world of finances and business models and all of that? What, what keeps um, these state executives up at night? Uh, that's probably a different answer for many of them. Um, there are so many different issues that they're trying to tackle. And, and I think in most cases, they don't have the funding to tackle those things. Um, some of the more current issues that we've been hearing a lot about are um, rural students and the challenges that they face that I think have largely largely been ignored for a long time. Um, also, incarcerated students, um, and they're currently not able to get a lot of financial aid, and there are a lot of issues with um, if you are incarcerated, you might be moved in the middle of a term and can't complete, um, a lot of things like that. Uh, I think student loan debt and affordability are probably some of the top concerns. Um, and then this is a little depressing, but if you look towards the future, it, the outlook doesn't really seem great for funding for higher education. Every time we have an economic recession, funding goes down so much for higher education. And that happens at the same time that a bunch of students are coming back because they've lost their jobs. And so they come back to school. So you have these kind of dual effects of, 
a state doesn't have the revenue it expected due to the recession, but also there are so many more students that need to be educated. And so you see these huge, steep declines in funding per student. Um, and one of the issues is that we never really seem to recover from those. So we had the tech bust in the early 2000s um, and funding for higher education declined. And then there were only three years before the Great Recession in 2008-2009 where funding declined to the lowest levels we've ever seen. Um, and since that time, states have actually been slowly, on average, not all states, but some states have been slowly increasing their funding trying to get back to prior levels. But we're only halfway back to where we were in 2008 and um, even farther from where we were in 2000-2001. So it does seem concerning that you know, there's all this talk of a recession coming up. And so with the next recession, it looks like funding will probably decline even further. Um, and it's, you know, that's, that's definitely concerning because as we talked about, we might be at the point where we can't really raise tuition anymore without pricing students out of the market. So it seems like there's a big crunch coming up for the financing of higher education. I was uh, first made a college president in 2007, August of 2007. Good timing, buddy. Yeah, and I had a, <laughs> I had a wonderful year. <laughs> one and wonderful honeymoon year, and then? I had one, one wonderful year. Funding was great, and life was good. The future was bright. Whammo. <laughs> and we've been worried about it ever since. Yeah. Um, Anyway, that's what I always stay awake worrying about. I stay awake worrying about um, what's going to happen in a recession. And recessions affect uh, different institutions uh, differently depending on the percent of their budgets or dependent on tuition versus state appropriations and whether they're in urban or rural places. And and uh, we're definitely, when you talked about all these issues, you know, about funding and rural students, we're a rural school. By far the smallest population center for any of the universities in the state of Utah. Yeah, so we're a school of about 12,500 students in a city of about 30,000 residents. And, and uh, uh, we feel um, exposed when, when, <laughs> <laughs> when these types of issues come up that we might, we may, we might be the, the place where the rubber first meets the road in terms of uh, enrollment declines and people deciding to stay home uh, in the case of a, a big economic downturn and so forth. Because they have to travel. If you want to go to SUU, um, we, don't, we hardly have any population in the three-county area that we Well, and even in serve. the three-county area, they have to move here. And they, That's right. And even then, they still have to move here. It's, it's such a large geographical area. I guess you could commute an hour and a half. <clears throat> commute an hour or an hour and a half or something, but... Um, it's a delightful place to live and learn. Yeah, it's a great place. But it is remote. Yeah. Incarcerated students, that's an interesting issue to bring up in terms of how we're serving them. Um, elaborate on that, would you please, Sophia? Yeah, um, and that I, that's something that I probably never thought about before about two years ago. Um, but we have, the higher education has the potential to really help people who come out of prison integrate back into life and be successful um, and not end up back in prison. 
but our current system is really not set up well for that. Um, a lot of institutions, particularly community colleges, partner with prisons to offer classes, um, but there are so many logistical issues with that. So if a student um, is taking classes and is in a prison, they could be moved at any time. They could be released in the middle of a semester. So our semester system really doesn't work for that. Um, and they'll end up never completing those credits. Um, and there are also just issues of K-12 education that you need to get through before you can really offer higher education. Um, and then there's the cost. So with the exception of a few institutions that are part of a sort of pilot program, students can't receive a Pell Grant, which is the federal financial aid, um, if they're incarcerated. And so that's that kind of makes it financially impossible because these students don't really have any money, um, largely. Right. And so they can't take the classes. Um, and so I think there's a big potential there because we do have such a big prison population in the U.S. There's a real potential to um, help reduce recidivism and um, help all of those people kind of integrate back into society, like I said. Um, but I think that we're just starting to to think about that. And um, the SHIOs, so our, our members across the states are starting to work with prison systems and kind of the equivalent head of a prison system to figure out how they can reduce some of those barriers and um, essentially serve more students that are incarcerated. Our, uh, our board chair is an entrepreneur and, and he's um, trying to work with prisons and building some programs for them. And the one program that he's interested in, of course, is entrepreneurship. And and uh, relative to those inmates who are um, violent offenders, um, he's constantly telling me that these are the perfect people to become entrepreneurs. They, they're they comfortable with risk, and they don't have the ability to get jobs, frankly. I mean, it's hard to get hired, and entrepreneurs don't want to be hired. They want to have their flexibility. So, um, you know, if you're trying to bring a program into a prison that that uh, the inmates will never be able to get employed in, like being a high school teacher. It's uh, not very productive, but there are other programs that would be extremely productive, perhaps. It's interesting to try to explore what it is that we can do for those individuals. Yeah, my, one of my very most satisfying teaching assignments, I, uh, I was at... Uh, a school, a two-year school in Utah that had a nearby prison. And uh, I'm a music uh, professor, and so I would go offer a uh, jazz and contemporary rock music history, um, history, uh, music history type course that was a gen ed uh, thing that would lead towards an associate's degree from the college where I worked. And I remember quite distinctly, I had to walk through 14 locked doors to, to get to my classroom, um, and you're you're right, Sophia. The the challenges that uh, are faced by the inmate population, uh, particularly since uh, their ability to attend class can be immediately curtailed, uh, was a great challenge to me. And I, you know, I I eventually um, I I had a research paper that I had them write as part of the assignment, and and they. <clears throat> They said to me, uh, we don't have anything in the library available to us. So I, I essentially donated all my books so that they would be able to um, 
because they, they had no internet access and they had very limited library holdings. And so offering, offering a higher education degree uh, program is, is expensive and it, and it requires uh, a real commitment uh, on behalf of the institution offering it and the state that's willing to support it. Well, these are interesting times. It'll be, um, do you have any, do, do you have a crystal ball over there in Boulder, Colorado that you can look five years ahead and tell us what's going to happen? I wish. That would be great. I would publish a report about it if I did. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for this uh, conversation. We appreciate you spending some time with us and, um, and we're grateful for the service that you're providing to our system and other systems of higher education around the country. Thank you so very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our guest today Sophia Latterman, who is a senior policy analyst at the State Higher Education Executive Officer Association. Sophia joined us by phone from her office in Boulder, Colorado. And we are delighted that she was able to join us. And as always, we're delighted that you, our listeners, were able to join us today. We look forward to talking with you all again soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu. Dot edu.